0: Well, if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm just going to read the first five verses here. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12 we We'll actually be reading a little further in this section uh, later on. But this passage may be the clearest and most succinct gospel explanation found in the New Testament. Uh, Paul spells out for us here what the essential elements of the gospel are. First, Christ Jesus died for our sins, which is found there in verse 3, according to the scriptures. And then in verse 4, that he was buried. And then third, that he rose or that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So here you have the gospel in its simplest form. Jesus died for our sins. That is, he was the substitute for our sins, a substitutionary atonement. He was buried. And I was thinking about why did Paul include this in the gospel, that Christ was buried? And I think it's because he is highlighting the fact that Christ really died. It's not that he was just weak. He wasn't just sick. He wasn't just almost dead. He was dead. He was in a grave for three days. He really died. But then, on the third day, he rose again. And the one thing that stood out to me as I was preparing this message is how much the writers of the New Testament include the resurrection of, uh, with the death of Christ. So when they're speaking about the death of Christ, they include right there with that the resurrection. It's as if it's one event. Christ Jesus died and rose again. And I started to go through the New Testament earlier this week, to look at all the references of Christ's death and to see how often they bring in reference to the resurrection. And to put it bluntly, I ran out of time. There's a lot of passages in the New Testament. And so I think we can say this, it is an emphasis in the New Testament that Christ Jesus died and rose again. And um, I was thinking for myself, do I give this as much emphasis as the scripture does? The fact that Christ rose again. I think I've got it pretty clear about his death and what that means for our salvation. But do I also think about it in the same way that his resurrection is part of that gospel message and with today being Resurrection Sunday, I thought what better time to consider our resurrected Savior and to look a little at how much this is emphasized in the New Testament. And so I'm going to consider three points today the first being the fact of Christ's resurrection, the second point being the necessity of Christ's resurrection, and then the third point, uh, the result of Christ's resurrection. So the first being the fact of Christ's resurrection, and I have a few different points on this one, Um, and the first that I wanted to mention here is that the Bible testifies to it. Why do we know that this is a fact? Because the Bible testifies to it. And we're going to look at this in a little more detail, specifically who in the Bible or where in the Bible is this brought up. But I want to, for now, just consider it in a more general sense. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave. It comes up repeatedly in the passages of Scripture. All four Gospels have a specific account of Christ's crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And the references are, you know, in at, just put it this way. At the end of each of the four Gospels, you can see his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. The writers of the New Testament also repeatedly tell us of the resurrected Christ. And I think it would be safe to say this. It is a central theme of the New Testament. It's not just something that occasionally appears. It's a central theme of the New Testament that Jesus died and rose again. And I was thinking about this Sometimes in apologetics, there can be a pressure to defend the faith by using neutral sources that are respected by the world. And in one sense, I understand the idea there. It's like if you can reason with, some, with someone on terms that they already agree with, you might have a better chance of convincing them on something. But we need to be careful here. There is nothing to be ashamed of in saying, I believe Jesus rose from the grave because the Bible says so. It's like the well-known children's hymn that we sometimes sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do you know Jesus loves me? The Bible tells me so. That's a good enough reason right there. The Bible says so. If you think about it, the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago long before any of us or any of our relatives were ever born. So we're going to have to believe something. We, can't, we have no firsthand knowledge of this. We're going to have to believe the Bible or some other writing, some other man who wrote a book or a testimony. Well, I choose to believe the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 says, and 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the Bible is God's word given to us. It is true. We can count on it. We can depend on it. We can and should believe what it says, and it says that Christ rose from the grave. Well, the second testimony that we have, not just the Bible in general, but more specifically, Jesus himself said that he would rise again. He said it in a couple places in somewhat what you might call figurative language when he spoke about the sign of Jonah. You remember that in Matthew 12? Um, He said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's testifying to the fact that of his death that he's going to be buried. Um, and then, of course, the implication there is Jonah, is Jonah—you know, after three days, is back on, on the ground, dry land. And so after three days, the Son of Man will no longer be in the heart of the earth. And then he also spoke of the temple of his body there in John 2, and where it says, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So there he's referencing specifically raising up. But again, it's kind of in figurative language. You may not have caught it right away. The disciples even missed some of these things until later on. But Jesus didn't just speak in figurative language. He said it very Plainly, in each of the synoptic gospels, it's recorded in Matthew 18 it, uh, 22 and 23 it says, "And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. That's very plain. It's not figurative there. It's as clear as can be. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again, rise again in three days." So the resurrection is not just a story that was made up by the followers of Jesus. Jesus himself said repeatedly that he would die and rise again. Well, we have the Bible as a whole testifying to the resurrection. We have Jesus himself testifying to it, but then we also have other witnesses that testify to it. And here's where we'll pick up again in this passage that we just read. Um, I'm going to just uh, pick up in verse 4. It says that he was buried, uh, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So you have him first appearing to Peter and then to the twelfth. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And this is Paul writing. So this is quite the list here. You've got the disciples. And then later he says the apostles, I'm assuming he's differentiating that because you have there in uh, Acts chapter 1 where they appoint a a new apostle and then he himself, Paul, is an apostle. Um, So he's differentiating that, but the, the big one to notice here, he appeared to 500, more than 500 at one time. What was the requirement For testimony in the Bible, if you remember in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, the Lord through Moses said, uh, it tells Israel, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And in the New Testament, this, this is referenced several times in various ways, but this idea of two or three witnesses are required to confirm a fact. Well, How many witnesses were there to the risen Christ? Over 500. It's like this goes way beyond the required minimum of of, uh, being able to testify to this as being a fact. So this is not just Jesus himself saying it. It's not just the writers of scripture saying it. It's 500 witnesses testifying to it. Well, then finally, his spirit testifies to us. The Holy Spirit testifies to the resurrected Christ. The fact of Christ's resurrection is attested to in many different passages of scripture and by many witnesses and through much consideration of facts. I mean, if you do the research on it, you're going to find a lot of facts and they're all testifying to the fact that Christ rose from the grave. But brethren, no one is saved by cold facts, just by studying the history. It is not just a mathematical calculation or some mathematical probability. The fact of Christ's resurrection is made known to us through faith and by revelation from the Holy Spirit. Think about doubting Thomas there. You know, he says, unless I can see him put my finger in his, in his hand, the wound in his hand, or put my hand on his side where he's pierced, I won't believe that he's risen from the dead. Well, Jesus comes to him later after uh, the Lord had already appeared to the other disciples and Thomas wasn't there. And so they're telling him, and he's like, I'm not going to believe this. Um, but then Jesus comes and, and appears to Thomas directly. And he said to Thomas, uh, this is in John 20, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So he did believe. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed, so just this the, the emphasis here to hear the word, to have the the spirit testify to you and to believe is a state of blessing. Jesus said, "Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed and I read um, an article that um, i couldn 't say it any better, so i 'm going to read you part of it. This is uh, from Uh, article that Piper wrote, titled, Eight Reasons Why I Believe Jesus Rose from the Dead. And this is one of the reasons that he gave. He says, there is a self-authenticating glory in the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, as narrated by the biblical witnesses. The New Testament teaches that God sent the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit does not do this by telling us that Jesus rose from the dead. He does it by opening our eyes to see the self-authenticating glory of Christ in the narrative of his life and death and resurrection. He enables us to see Jesus as he really was, so that he is irresistibly true and beautiful. The apostle stated the problem of our blindness and the solution like this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. A saving knowledge of Christ crucified and risen is not the mere result of right reasoning about historical facts. It is the result of spiritual illumination to see those facts for what they really are, a revelation of the truth and glory of God in the face of Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever and i thought that was such a good summary here of this point we it's not as though there is something wrong with studying the history and there's nothing wrong with studying it's right to study the scriptures but what is the the convincing point is not that there's more evidence for christ's resurrection than that he didn't rise from the dead it's that the spirit gives us light shines into our hearts there is a personal testimony of of the, the Lord to us through his spirit. I was thinking of this song uh, that we sing sometimes, I Serve a Risen Savior. And at the end of the chorus it says, You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Again, that personal testimony. How do I know that Christ is risen? Because he's alive in me. He's revealed himself to me. It's good to know the arguments, it's good to weigh the facts, but ultimately the Christian testifies to the risen Savior not because of all that evidence, but because of the personal evidence in their own life. Well, the second point then, the necessity of Christ's resurrection. And staying here in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I want to pick up and read verses 12 through 19. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 and following. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. As a child and teenager growing up, I was regularly reading my Bible And when I would come across this passage, I remember being puzzled by it. Um, I saw the absolute necessity of the sacrificial death of Christ to atone for my sins. I was clear on that. Um, Without Christ's death on the cross, where God's wrath for my sin was poured out on him, on Christ, I would be hopelessly lost in my sins. That I was clear on. But the resurrection, I tended to think of that um, as kind of the idea of like icing on the cake. Uh, My Savior died for my sins, which purchased my salvation. That was like the cake, the foundation. And that he rose again, well, that was just an added bonus. That was the icing on the top. Uh, The cake is good, and it can stand alone but the icing makes it all the more sweet. That's the way that I thought of it, which was wrong, very wrong, especially according to this passage here. Paul says very clearly in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. In other words, if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. It's that Necessary. There is no death of Christ, and that purchases salvation, apart from the resurrection of Christ. The two must go together. So why is the resurrection of Christ so necessary? I came up with two reasons. This is not all the reasons, so please understand, this is not exhaustive. But here are two reasons why... The resurrection of Christ is necessary. The first being, the resurrection proved the deity of Christ. The law of Moses spelled out how sacrifice for sin was to be made. A spotless lamb was to be offered for sin. Not something broken, not something defiled. It had to be spotless. But the question comes up, did those sacrifices, did those lambs actually take away sin? And of course the answer is no, they didn't. And for this, I'm going to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 and read a few verses. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins." But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the writer to Hebrews makes it very clear, all those Old Testament sacrifices, they didn't do anything to actually cleanse the guilty of their sin. It all was pointing to something else. It served a purpose, but it did not cleanse the guilty of their sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what offering could be made that would actually satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin forever? It would have to be the ultimate perfect sacrifice, It would have to be the ultimate spotless lamb. Because time after time after time, these one-year-old lamb with no spots on them died and didn't take away sin. So what offering is it that's going to permanently take away sin? Well, continuing on in Hebrews 10, jump down to verse 11. It says, every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. That repeats what we just said. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So this one offering of Christ is far superior to every other offering combined. Because this one offering was the spotless Lamb of God. The Son of God. God himself being offered. The resurrection of Christ proved his deity, which in turn shows that his death really did satisfy the wrath of God fully and completely. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't God, and his death did not atone for your sins. So the the person who would say Jesus was a, a good person, he was a good man, He had good teachings. The question is, is that enough? Is his death enough to pay for all of our sins? No. Clearly, no. There is only one sacrifice that's enough to pay for all of our sins. It has to be the sacrifice of God himself. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Jesus was not God. But he did rise from the dead. This proves the deity of Christ. Well, the second reason that the resurrection of Christ is necessary is that the resurrection of Christ proved that the sacrifice was finished. On the cross, God's wrath for our sins was poured out on Christ and he died. But how do we know that his death fully satisfied the wrath of God? How do we know that God has no more wrath reserved for us? Because after the wrath of God was fully placed upon Christ and he died, God then raised him to life again. It is as if God is saying, it's over. I have fully poured out my wrath on him. He has paid for it in full. The punishment is over and he raises him to life again. It's completed. It's finished. What did Jesus say on the cross there? It is finished. He had taken all the wrath of God upon himself. It's not as though I'll pay for 50% of the sin. It's up to you to pay for the rest. If that's the case, it's over for us. If God paid for 99% of the sins and we were left with just even one sin that's over. We, don't, we cannot atone for any of our sins. But Jesus paid for them all. And when he rose again, it was evidence, it was proof that it's over. It's finished. Christ paid for all of our sins. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our sins would not have been paid for in full. And we would, as Paul says, still be in our sins. So in conclusion to this second point of the necessity of Christ's resurrection, um, the resurrection of Christ is not just a reason to celebrate. It is not just a cause for joy, although it is both of those, but the resurrection of Christ is an absolute necessity of the Christian faith without it, we are hopelessly lost, still lost in our sins. But praise God, Jesus did rise from the grave, and praise God, we are not lost in our sins. So this brings us then to the final point here, the result of the resurrection. And there are so many Results and benefits of the resurrection of christ um, it it seems kind of foolish to to try and summarize this here at the end of a message. We could talk for weeks on end about the benefits of Christ rising from the dead, but instead, we are going to have this be a single point and a single message. Which, in other words, I'm only going to be scratching the surface here, so clearly this is not going to be an exhaustive study. But think with me about what our lives were like before knowing Christ. If you're a believer, think about your life before knowing Christ. Some of us were saved at an early age, at a young age, and may not remember a whole lot of life apart from Christ, others were saved much later in life and remember vividly what it was like to be an unbeliever apart from Christ. But whether or not you remember vividly or not, I think we can all ponder for a moment what it is like to live apart from Christ. The first point, life apart from Christ is very hopeless. For the unbeliever, think about this, this life is the best that they'll ever experience. One uh, pastor stated it this way, this world is the closest thing to heaven that the unbeliever will ever experience. That's a sobering reality. This world full of all the sin and trials and hardships is the closest thing to heaven that the unbeliever will ever experience. Now this life does have its share of blessings and joys, but the joys of this life pale in comparison. They don't even compare to the joys of heaven. And for the unbeliever, this is the best that there is, this life right here. There is nothing more to look forward to for the unbeliever. It only gets worse. Second thing, the unbeliever lives in fear of death and fear of what comes after death or the afterlife. And I use the term afterlife because that is the way most people, lost people that is, speak about it, the afterlife. Maybe they are unsure what happens after they die. And so they're, they're afraid of the unknown. Maybe they know there is a God, and that there is a heaven and a hell, and they're afraid of facing God and facing his judgment. But whatever their belief, they live in a state of fear of death. Some are openly fearful, and they'll talk about it. I'm afraid to die. Others, I would say, are more silently fearful, and they find ways to always distract themselves. That that thought of the fear of death, what happens after I die? It's like the conscience speaking to them. Conviction comes upon them. And instead of listening and heeding, like we talked about a few weeks ago, they tune it out. They distract themselves. Um, working in the hospital uh, lately here, you know, I've not been working in the sleep lab but instead working in the respiratory therapy department, which has me in the emergency room. And there are some pretty awful cases that come through there, Uh, traumas and car wrecks and people dying. And it's interesting to see the way that the staff, as they're caring for this, the way that they handle it. And I understand that in the middle of a, a trauma, you can't stop and really ponder eternity. It's like, you've got a task to do, you've got to do it. But afterwards, it doesn't seem natural to be making jokes after someone has died. And I'm not talking about making jokes in front of other family members and such, but among the staff. It's like there's this callousness to the reality of life and death. What is that? It's a way of distracting yourself from the reality that death is coming for me, and I'm going to be facing judgment. It is a reality that the unbeliever lives in a state of fear. Well, contrast that now with the reality for the Christian. Instead of hopelessness, the Christian lives with great hope and expectation. And by hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. You know, we talk about, I hope it's going to be a sunny day tomorrow. You know, that's kind of that idea of, I have no control over this. I don't have any assurances, but I hope this is going to happen. Well, when the Bible talks about hope, it is talking about a certain and definite reality that is not yet realized. You don't see it yet, but it is certain and it's coming. It's like the watchman staying up all night, keeping guard, and watching. Hoping for the dawn, hoping for the sunrise. He's not hoping in this wishful thinking, I hope maybe that the sun's going to come up. No, there's a certainty about it. The time will pass and the sun is going to come up again. It is certain expectation. And that's the way it is, that is what a definition or a description, you might say, maybe not a definition, but a description of biblical hope. Because of the resurrection, the Christian lives with great hope and expectation. We have hope that this life is not all that there is. We have hope that death is not the end. Instead, death is just the entrance into an eternal presence with the Lord, and so we will be always with the Lord. We have hope that just as God raised Christ, so we too will rise again also. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. God has raised Christ, but he's also going to raise us up by that same power. And then back in 1 Corinthians 15 I want to read just one one more verse on this point. So we finished reading the last time, verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But then he goes on and he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What is this idea here of the first fruits? Well, think about it in the times of a harvest. You've planted this, the seed. You've sowed your field. You've waited on the rains. You've cared for that. You've, you've taken care of the weeds. You've tried to care for this this harvest, this field. And it's produced a harvest. But the first bit that comes up, what do you do with it? You take it and you offer it back to the Lord in thanks, but also in expectation of a greater harvest that is yet to come. So it's as if a few of your vegetables or your fruit have come out. You take those, you give them to the Lord in expectation of a greater harvest that's yet to come. You may not see that greater harvest yet, but you know it is coming. Christ is that first fruit. He's the first one to be raised from the dead to newness of life, and there is a much greater harvest yet to come, and that is all the believers one day will be raised up with him. There is a certainty about it. So the Christian does not live in a state of hopelessness, but instead great hope and expectation. Well, secondly, instead of fear... The Christian lives with great confidence. Notice I didn't say the Christian lives without fear, but rather that the Christian lives with confidence. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to do my best to try and explain this. Underneath the Christian is a foundation of truth in the promises of God. Or put another way, underneath the Christian is God himself we have a firm foundation. That foundation is immovable no matter how hard the trial and no matter how scary the situation. Our foundation will not fail. And Jesus contrasted the house built upon the sand and the house built upon the rock there in Matthew 7. Both houses faced similar storms, but one stood because it was founded on a rock, on a foundation, a firm foundation, and the other one fell because it had no foundation. And thinking about this in our lives, all of us have experienced trials, and some have experienced severe trials. And I have a list here of some of the things that some have faced and this is really, it's, it's sobering to think about just the trials that the believers in this flock have faced. Some have lost children through miscarriage, and for some, even after birth. Some have experienced or are currently experiencing severe health trials. Some have children who are struggling in bondage to sin. Some have lost jobs. And I think it would be safe to say all of us have lost, as in have loved ones that have passed away. And thinking about these trials and these hardships, does the believer experience a complete absence of fear? When we hear the report from the doctor that this sickness uh, we're experiencing is terminal, do we experience some fear? With that? If you're inside the house that's been founded upon the rock, does it mean that you won't experience some fear when that storm slams against the house? And I would say, I think there is a place for fear in the midst of the trial. But underneath it all is a confidence in the promises of God and his faithfulness to us. That is undergirding the Christian at all times. The believer has a foundation that they are standing on that is immovable. It can't be shaken. The Christian's perspective on the trial is completely different from the lost man's perspective. The unbeliever, think about this, the unbeliever is alone in a trial They have no control over it, and they don't know what the future holds. And we've already talked about the fear of death, and that's always lingering out there, especially when we're talking about sickness and illness. That's always in the back of their mind, our mind even too. Is this sickness going to lead to death? And am I ready to die? That's where the unbeliever is going in their mind, and they have no control over it. But the Christian... They aren't alone in the trial. God is with them. The Christian has no control over the trial, but there is confidence in the sovereign God of the universe who has absolute control over everything, including the trial that they're going through. The Christian doesn't know what the immediate future holds. They may be asking that same question. Is this sickness going to lead to death? But the Christian knows the ultimate future, and that is God will be with me through this trial. God will be with me through life and through death, and someday I will be with him forever. You see, because of the resurrection, we can have absolute confidence as we face the trials of this life even death itself. I mean, I i can't think of a greater trial that a person faces than the reality that death is coming. But for the Christian, it's an entirely different place. They're in a different place. Is there anxious thoughts, worried thoughts about death? Probably. But there is a foundation that they're standing on, a confidence in who God is. That just as God raised Christ from the dead, so also we will be raised with him. I thought of another song that you all are probably familiar with. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. There's some good theology in that. Because Christ lives, we can face tomorrow. We don't have to go in despair and hopelessness about the future. Christ lives. He's alive. I was thinking of a biblical example of this confidence. And uh, couldn't think of a better one. Then the example of the life of the disciples. After the crucifixion, before the disciples knew of his resurrection, it says this in John 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. That's kind of an interesting phrase there. Here are the disciples. Jesus has died. Maybe they've heard that he's risen, but they haven't seen him yet. And so they huddle together in this room on the first day of the week. I would take that to be, I, I need to go back and look. I would take that to be the day that Jesus did rise from the grave. I think it's that same day, not the next week. Here they are gathered together, and they are they've closed the doors because of fear of the Jews. The disciples were afraid. And in another passage in Luke, um, you see a a glimpse of this fear, or what I might call hopelessness or disappointment, um, that they felt after Christ's death. So these two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and you remember, Jesus comes and walks with them, and is having a conversation with them, but they don't know it's the Lord. And this is what they say. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now, just a little side note. That's not that biblical hope we were talking about earlier. That was That's kind of like an expression of disappointment. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, but how can he? he? He died. He died a death on a cross. What a... Um, you just think of a shameful death here at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. Think about the, here the disciples, they had walked with Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had seen his life. They had heard his teachings. And their, their expectations couldn't have been higher. And then they're dashed because Christ has died. And so you see that hopelessness or that disappointment and that fear. But after the resurrection... What do we see displayed in the lives of the disciples in the book of Acts? And I'm going to read some of this to you. It's not, they're not long passages, but this is from Acts chapter 2. So this is Peter. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And just a couple verses here from Acts 2, 29 through 32. So Peter speaking. He says, Brethren, "...I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day." So here's someone that the entire nation of Israel looks to as and reveres, King David. Well, he's dead, and his tomb is right here. "...and so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne..." He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. The boldness that Peter, here in the midst, not just a few people, you know, not that long ago he had been too ashamed to even associate with Jesus and lies to a slave girl that he even knew who Jesus was. And here he is boldly proclaiming to all those that are gathered, some of them even leaders of Israel, he's boldly proclaiming, this Jesus whom you crucified is now risen again. And then skip over to Acts chapter 4. Again, this is Peter and John this time, but Peter is the one speaking. Verse 8 Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health." And then jumping down to verse 13. Now, as they, that is, this would be the rulers, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize uh, them as having been with Jesus. This confidence that the disciples had, why? Why did they have such confidence after being so afraid not that long before? Why? Because they had experienced and witnessed the risen Savior. They knew that what Jesus had said was going to happen, they had seen Him, then they began to remember. He said that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die and rise again. And he really did die. And they be, their eyes began to be opened to see this Savior that we walked with and heard from. He is the Savior of the world. Their eyes were opened to see not just a physical king who would deliver a physical nation, but the glorious risen Christ who would deliver his people from sin and from Satan's power. And it was in this hope, in this confidence, that they boldly proclaimed the risen Christ. And I was thinking, just in closing, it is this same reality for each one of us who knows the Lord. Our eyes have beheld the glories of Christ revealed to us in his word. If you're a Christian, you've seen something of the beauty of Christ in his word. By faith, we've laid hold of the promises of God. And in this hope and this confidence, we too can boldly proclaim the risen Christ. We can proclaim it to the lost world around us. And there's two ways that we proclaim the risen Christ. One is through audible proclamation, preaching the word, sharing the word. But another way that we proclaim the risen Christ is through our lives. As we go through trials and face these trials, not as the world does, who have no hope, but instead we face them with great hope and confidence in what awaits us as his beloved children. Brethren, you realize that as you go through trials, the world is watching they're watching to see how you respond to those trials, and as you respond to those trials in faith, looking to Christ, the world notices. They do, and that's where there's oftentimes there's an opening to share something. I'm trying to remember who it was, it was either it may have been Valard uh, there in the hospital with it was either for himself or with his wife. And just the testimony of going through the, the health trial, whatever it was, and the doctors caring for them and seeing the difference and asking basically the question of, you know, what is different about you? You're, you're not like any patient I've ever had. That, that is a testimony to the, the reality of the Christian living in great hope and expectation of the promises of God. Well, we can also proclaim the risen Christ to ourselves as we face trials in our life and struggle with fear. We should remind ourselves of the glorious reality that because Jesus Christ is alive from the dead, our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God. We have already been delivered from the greatest trial there is, and that is the wrath of God upon us. That has been removed, it's been placed upon Christ, we are free in that sense. The greatest trial we have been ever faced was sin, and that we've been delivered from that, and God will be with us through all the other trials as well. So because of the resurrection, because of the risen Savior, we can have great confidence. Well, amen. Well, it shouldn't be too hard to see how this leads into our time of communion this morning. What Jesus accomplished for us on the cross was punctuated and validated by God raising him from the dead. And we remember not a dead and buried Savior, but we remember a risen Savior who is alive today, sitting at the right hand of God. That's who we're remembering when we take the bread and the juice. We're remembering what Jesus did, but we're remembering the fact that he is the risen Savior.